Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast, critical discussions in critical times. Here's your host, Bill Kelly. Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I am your host, Bill Kelly. Great to have you with us here today. Uh, as we, on this particular show, uh, well, acknowledge a, a, an anniversary of sorts and uh, something that I'm not too sure too many of us were going to be talking about uh, into the third year now of the Russian invasion in uh, in Ukraine. Uh, I don't know that anybody thought that this conflict was going to last as long as it has. Uh, I'm not sure where we're going on this. There's certainly some rather dire circumstances that have occurred lately. And to get some perspective on this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the show uh, Dr. Robert Hewish, who is an associate professor with the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. Uh, Robert, a great pleasure to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Always, always great to chat to you. You and I started talking about the well, the, just the day after the invasion, of course. Uh, now, just over two years ago, just a couple of days uh, past the second anniversary of this, uh, and I, I don't want to get too, you know, mundane about this and say, well, did you think it was going to last this long? I don't think Vladimir Putin thought it was going to last this long. I think <laughs> easy peasy, I'll be at Kiev by the end of the month, and and everything's going to be just the way we want it to be. Uh, something went wrong in that in that master plan, but uh, and and you know the, the the resolve of the Ukrainian people and of, of, of Vladimir Zelensky and others, I think is is well documented and remarkable still to this day. But where do you see it now? Where are we, and where are the people of Ukraine right now? So it's it's dire times in Ukraine in, in, in this very moment. Uh, coming into the third the third year of this conflict, in particular because some of the early gains, some of those surprise moments of you know, repelling back the Russian military, reclaiming territory, uh, basically setting up a, an entire shipping corridor in the Black Sea for Ukrainian vessels. All of these gains now seem to be coming on hold a little bit. And this is what we see with a war of attrition in this way. We, you know, after the first uh, few months of fighting by the Ukrainians against Russia, this quickly turned into something where it wasn't going to be quick for either side. It would be a war of attrition. And now we have to start thinking about where is the exit strategy in these terms. And, and right now we're seeing in Ukraine that the gains aren't being made, especially in the last month, right? The political opponents like uh, Navalny uh, is, was, was killed in prison. We see that there's been territory lost by Ukrainians, by Russians pushing further in. Uh, Russia's munitions production is up uh, five times now what it was a year ago. So that's showing some defiance against sanctions as well. And right now, what, what Ukraine really, really needs more than sanctions against Russia, more than any good wishes, is they need military reinforcements. They need the good technology uh, at hand that, that we've seen in this conflict that's allowed you know teams of two or three soldiers to go out there uh, with some drones and some rockets and destroy entire tank columns. Uh, that's the only way that we're going to see that being pushed back. And it's uh, it's grim. Uh, one of the things that we see also is that uh, the, con the, the recruiting or conscripting of men in Ukraine to fight, there's now some more resistance to that. There's a, there's a, a radio station that broadcasts, quote unquote, the weather report uh, the, the night before uh, on 1 a.m. This sort of pirate radio goes out across Ukraine telling you where it's going to be snowing or raining and this sort of thing it has nothing to do with the weather bill. It's about where the, the conscriptors are going to be going in looking for men of fighting age in Ukraine. So we're not seeing the enthusiasm uh, by Ukrainians today in February of, of 2024 that was there you know, only up to six months ago. 
Uh, troubling fact I read over the weekend, uh, I'm sure you saw it too, uh, Robert. The average age of the fighting people in Ukraine right now is over 40, yeah. uh, which is, is frightening. I mean, where where is, is there a sense of resignation that this is over and it's just a matter of what? I mean, uh, I, I can't see that in the Ukrainian people, but uh, it, it just seems as if, as you say, uh, those that were rushing to the fight, I mean, people from all over the world with Ukrainian mm-hmm. heritage were going to say, I need to fight for my country. That was two years ago. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't, it's not that, not happening now. No. And, and, you know, I don't think it's the end of it. I think it it's, it's time for uh, Zelensky and some of the world leaders in NATO to really rethink about what they need to do to get the job done. You're, you're right. There's older soldiers on, on the Ukrainian side and they are facing uh, very young conscripts and now international conscripts on the Russian side, right? We, we've now got evidence that Russians have been sending out uh, recruitment of mercenaries from places like Cuba, Nepal, uh, other former places where, where the Wagner Group worked in, uh, in in East and Central Africa as well. So it's not just Russians anymore. They're they're having trouble themselves trying to get people to go to, to the front line to achieve their ends. But what's particularly important about the Ukrainian uh, army in this case is that so few people can create such... Uh, big impacts on the Russian military infrastructure. And that's that's always been a point throughout this conflict is that on the Ukrainian side, they've been able to use a lot of strategic weaponry, like the, the, the drones that are able to just sort of hover above a tank column, can't really see, I'm not sure if they're there, and then they'll strike when they're ready. It's about precision attacks by Ukraine against Russia to minimize civilian deaths on that side. We haven't seen that kind of allotment from Russia going back into Ukraine. They are more than willing to put... Uh, missile attacks and and artillery shells into civilian areas. So I think what we need to see here is that it is possible for Ukraine to get back on its track, to have the NATO technical advisors and the munitions to come in and really push the the, the Russian forces back uh, away. It is possible, but it needs momentum and it needs political support with all of the NATO allies. And I think NATO itself is a little apprehensive at the moment to say what its future is going to be. And that's entirely dependent upon the U.S. presidential election coming up in November. Well, and I know Zelensky mentioned that. And I know that uh, as, as we're recording this on, on Monday, uh, Zelensky's uh, going to be on ABC, uh, CNN. Uh, he's he's doing the interview circuit right now. It's, it's as if he has to, and he's not, it's not the first time he's done this. He's had to basically go around and drum up support, especially mm-hmm. in the United States. Uh, and and we can talk about the Canadian situation because the, the prime minister was over there, of course, this past weekend. Uh, but I, I can see Zelensky looking at the political situation in in the United States right now. Uh, it was bad enough that you had a Donald Trump that that obviously has has you know cast his lot with Vladimir Putin. We we knew that. I think we've known that since day one of a Trump presidency. Uh, but now the return, and he's talked quite frankly about about NATO. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a, a great fear that I wrote over the weekend in the New York Times among some that uh, that if Trump is reelected, he's basically going to pull the United States out of NATO, uh, which is certainly going to have an impact on on that uh, that august body that's been basically trying to keep the peace in Europe since World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're we're on the precipice of a very very difficult time, and 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 things can go sideways uh, pretty quickly here. Oh yeah, and you know, make no mistake that when it's election time, uh, Americans are going to be thinking about their own domestic interests before any inter- international commitments when those those votes get cast. So that's for sure. The, the the thing is that, you know, not only has has Trump sort of mocked NATO to a certain degree, 
uh, he, he said he would actually encourage uh, Putin to to invade another another area. So if you're Finland, if you're Poland, if you're Lithuania, Estonia, uh, that's a real big smoke signal right there to say, look, the trouble is a brewing. Uh, there's even talks right now that there could be some uh, some advancement for for Russia to attack another member in Europe. That's something that that Putin sort of hinted at in the last couple of weeks. And it's not something that should be dismissed. And I say that because right now, the way that we're, we can sort of look back in the last two years and try to figure out why this, this war has taken place in, 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 in Ukraine. Uh, when it occurred, I mean, the months leading up to a lot of people said, oh, geez, this isn't going to happen. He wouldn't be that crazy to, to do this. And here we are into year three. And part of that is, is grounded in the way Putin reflects his own view about Russia itself. Um, it, you know, he's aware that Russia is not competitive in the world in terms of, it doesn't have the economy to be competitive with the West. And so as a sort of way of holding on to power, because he doesn't want to open Russia to the West, he doesn't want to change things up. The only way he thinks he can do it to make Russia a player in the world is by changing the world around it. And that means in this case that there will be, as long as Putin's in power, somebody is going to be attacked. Right now it's Ukraine, could be somebody else down the road. There will always be an excuse invented for this too. And this is sort of like the all-in, like the like the total war mentality that uh, Germany kind of ran with at the end of 1918 uh, towards the end of World War I, that once you realize, okay, they're going for it, they're never going to stop this aggression, then NATO and the allies need to realize that this isn't going to be a mild scrimmage. Borders are going to be realigned New political opposition will will take over one day. That's not going to happen. So we need to make sure that the, the political commitment and the resources are going to be present to push these guys back in their place. And and that's and, and that's something that NATO hasn't been very equipped with either. Because you know who's the opposition inside of Russia right now? Well, they're they're all becoming revenants. They're all they're all ghosts that haunt. Uh, you just go through the list of suspicious deaths of Vladimir Putin's uh, opposition. And they just amount up. And, and Navalny is just the, the, the latest case in that. Uh, there is anti-war movements inside Russia. There's a, there's a, there's a movement called uh, Putdomi, which uh, means the way home. And it's led by the wives. It's led by sisters, mothers of the mobilized conscripts uh, who on the weekends go out and they, they lay flowers at tombs of unknown soldiers. Uh, the, the Russian government hasn't cracked down on them, but they have been persecuting the media that covers them. So, you know, that's a frailty. And I think that we need to to think about how this third year and albeit a fourth year is going to go forward is going to be one that's going to require the fracturing of the system that Putin has put in place. And that's one that runs on fear. It's one that runs on corruption. And it's one that's incredibly fearful of people who are brave enough to stand up to it. And and particularly comedians, right? Navalny was a good joker and and uh, Zelensky, that was his former, his yeah. former career, and it's almost like the real, the real enemies of Putin are those who can, who are the comedians who can make, make, take a swipe at him. And and the, and you know, the, for those that are asking, well, how can Putin get away with this? Because he can, uh, and, and that, which I guess segues us right into the United States political system. Is you can't have a discussion about this without talking about what's going on politically there, uh, and and you know, you talk about you know the Russian people that did want to push back against Putin, uh, and and those sorts of dictators. Uh, there was, uh, there's NATO, I get that, but I mean, let's face it, the big dog has always been the United States yeah. and U.S. presidents historically, uh, from Eisenhower to Kennedy, 
to Johnson to a certain extent, but even the you know the Republican, well, it's Reagan, uh, right down the list. Uh, they've stood up to Russia, uh, and and they've basically said this is the enemy. And mm -hmm. you look at the political circumstance there right now, you've got not just Trump, but the Republican Party embracing Putin uh, openly. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there's there's some whack jobs like Tuberville and others that just say, you know, the, 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 you know they, they, they come up with these outrageous ideas. But the consensus among the Republican Party, or at least the ones that they're, they're, you know, they're speaking publicly about this, seem to be, what's the big deal? So what, uh, you know? We'll we'll get a peace pact there. Uh, we, probably Russia is going to take half of Ukraine back, but that'll be it. Which yeah. sounds very much to me like Neville Chamberlain. You know, let's oh. give them what they want, and and they'll be happy, and they'll stay away. And you know, and I know, and I think you know, smart thinking people understand that that's not where Putin's going to end up, and he's going to continue. This will embolden him, won't it? Oh, absolutely. This is this is something that uh, that Mr. Putin's regime can only now exist in a state of war. Right? He doesn't have the big support inside. It's not a functioning democracy by any means. It's not representing the interests of its people. It's a nation deeply divided and deeply uh, repressed when it comes to any sort of expressions of freedom. So by, by continuing a state of perpetual war, that's exactly how he's going to maintain power. Because in Putin's world, uh, either you're, you're three things. Either you can be bought, you can be intimidated, or you can be conscripted. That's the ordering of society right now. And I just think back, you know, I mean, the Republican Party of all the organizations, right? Where is, you know, where's the voice of Ronald Reagan, right? Who was, who was the, the one who would, who would, he had, again, he had the, just a, a way of sort of piercing the mentality of dealing with Russia in the 1980s that, that was just so laser focused. And, and one of the big things that, that we're seeing today that, 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 that is just lacking is calling out the sort of deeply problematic system of governance in in Russia today that you know Reagan and the and the crowd back in the day would so easily do. Uh, this was a party, Republican Party was all about embracing freedoms and about ensuring that people had their civil liberties. But some of the recent speaking points that we hear from the party itself, from Donald Trump and the, the news outlets that tend to support their their cause is that oh Russia's not so bad right it's hey it's just a little bit different maybe they do things uh, that that is a, maybe we can take a lesson from now that's frightening that that I don't know uh, in the history of the U S uh, something like that could be could be tolerated or accepted by by the voting public um, the, the the Tucker Carlson interview is a perfect example of oh, that right yeah. he's, he's he's praising their subways and their shopping carts. Uh, you know, as being just so much better than America. Well, there's a lot more to the character of humanity and the character of a country than shopping carts and subways. Yeah, but he made a big deal about that. You know, he's a great idea. Look, you, you put a coin in there and the, the buggy comes out. <laughs> We've had that in Ancaster for the last 40 years. I mean, That's but, right. You know, he's I never guess been to a Tucker doesn't way. get out of the house very often, does he? No. Uh, but but that kind of of of, of opportunity for people like that and matt gates and others you know they were all of course at the cpap convention this past weekend which is uh, basically a disneyland for for right wingers uh and some outrageous things were being said there uh and all predicated on the fact that putin's a pretty decent guy and and you know we can get along with him uh and and it's it's such an, an about face mm -hmm. and i could understand this and you know we're talking about reagan and some of the other past u.s presidents uh, there was a time then where I think there might have been a glimmer of hope with Gorbachev and to a certain extent Yeltsin to say, hey, maybe, maybe we can find some common ground here. Uh, Putin's a criminal. 
Uh, he mm-hmm. he is acknowledged international criminal. Uh, he's not like those guys. I mean, he's he's going all the way back to the days of Stalin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I can't believe that the people in the Republican Party uh, don't see that. And and but, mm-hmm. but they're looking at this as a political opportunity right now. There's there may be something even more sinister than that. That they may recognize just the very points that you've made there, but they may see that that agenda is somehow useful to their agenda. That there's a there's a vision that they want to try to 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 project through the next election that's going to go hand in hand to some degree, but it's it's going to be a real like that sort of leadership is really going to put the U.S. in a in a very vulnerable position. Uh, it's something like with dealing with Putin over the long term here, right? He's been a problem since 2004, if not before, and we've seen the response from the West as being one where ooh that's bad, ooh that's offside but we really don't want to to take direct action on it. And so for the last 20 years, any sort of offense by Putin has often been responded to with soft power. So there's Putin enacting hard power, goes into Crimea, goes into Ukraine, uh, random acts of belligerence, and then the West responds with soft power. And we're seeing that, you know, you can sanction as many people as you want in Russia, I think it was 16,500 sanctions-ish against Russian firms, and they're upping production of material. So that's not what works. That soft power response is not how you deal with, with Putin on the inside. The, the, the one moment, Bill, in the last couple of years where I thought, oh, it's going to be over tomorrow and probably be replaced by something even more nasty was when Prigozhin was, was riding mm-hmm. his, his convoy up to Moscow, right? He, he, he was up there and then suddenly he just made a left turn and then went, went into Belarus. And no one really understands why that was. Uh, but what we do understand is that nobody resisted him, right? The entire Russian army just sort of let that happen. So I think the way that if, if you know, Democrats in the U.S. want to take this seriously, Canada wants to take this seriously, and NATO, back to what I said earlier, that that, early, that change in mentality, realizing that this isn't going to end, this is a total war for, for, Putin's, uh, for Putin's agenda, the only way he stays in power is through war. If those are the terms that we're up against, let's start building a response package that can that can meet that head on and it it will probably need to be the inclusion of more equipment more people more consultants or whoever else that can support the ukrainian army at this time because even though they were so outnumbered with the support they received over the last couple of years they basically held this bear off right and and now if that starts to wane that starts to break we'll see We'll see that progression of Russian troops into Ukraine and probably another target uh, in Europe to follow pretty soon after that. A couple of minutes left here. I want to ask you about uh, your your impressions of the prime minister's visit over there this past weekend in Kiev, uh, then making some some speeches over in Poland uh, after his visit with Zelensky. Uh, Canada has been lambasted, and, and I think they've really turned up the heat on Canada over the last six or eight months, especially about our, our military commitment to NATO. Uh, you know, the guideline is 2%. Some suggest that's a hard and fast uh, policy. Others are saying it's a suggestion. Fact is, that whatever it is, we fall woefully below that. I think we're at 1.3% now. Uh, the Prime Minister said over the weekend that Canada needs to do more. Uh, the U.S. ambassador to to NATO and to the United Nations uh, basically called out Canada. It, I mean, it's one thing when Trump does it, uh, but now all of a sudden other U.S. leaders, including people in the Biden administration, are looking north and saying, guys, you got to step up. Uh, mm-hmm. There's still no commitment there. 
from the Canadian government as to what they're going to do specifically. You know, and you know, platitudes are one thing, and, and that's what the ambassador said. Saying you want to work towards that is not going to do anybody any good. Uh, where is that pressure going to come from, and, and how does this government react uh, to say, you know, because even the countries that are not at 2% yet have said that their, their hard deadline is 2025, 2026 to get up there. We're not getting any kind of a commitment from the Canadian government about that. No, no, we're not. And and this is actually something that is kind of an inherent problem to the integration of Canadian politics to the actual public policy structure, where you can have the politicians go and take the mic in, in, in a country, and it could be the red team, blue team, orange team, green team, doesn't matter who. They'll get up there, they'll say, we are going to commit, we're going to do this, they're going to lay out the budget percentage that they're going to put towards it. And when that actually gets put into the machinery, that winds up going into programs that don't really get boots on the ground or munitions to the front line. They will go into other things. They'll go into development, research, technical assistance, all these sort of things that tend to fan out and keep the real needed entities at the front. Where Britain, Germany, and the U.S., for example, when they say, we're going to send torpedoes, we're going to send missiles, we are going to send drones, that's what shows up. So I think that we need to have a key industry, a product that we can get in the hands of today Ukraine, tomorrow Poland, Lithuania is probably next on that list. So it actually serves a purpose. If NATO commitments are going to translate into repairing our uh, our Arctic fleet or uh, putting new paint on boats or upgrading a weapon system on a, on, a, on a northern patrol ship, that's not what we need right now. We need to make sure that we don't lose it in the budget, get things right on the front, front lines. And, and there's so many issues that dovetail into this, including, you know, whether or not we should join Arcus. I mean, the prime minister was pretty dismissive of that a year or so ago, saying we don't want to get into nuclear submarines. Well, maybe you better rethink that, too, uh, that's given right. what's going on. You know, and just as a comparator here, uh, even though the prime minister says, yeah, we, we, we need to do more, he hasn't identified or, or committed to that. We, we are still at 1.3%. Poland, on the other hand, 8%. Yep. of their GDP goes towards military. And, I, and the obvious reason is it's happening right on their doorstep because they know that if Ukraine falls, uh, Putin's going to be eyeing Poland again. Exactly. I was in Poland actually in, in December, Bill, and I was in the, the, the western part of Poland in a town called uh, Wrocław, which used to be part of Germany before the, the Second World War. Even there, away fairly distant from Ukraine, from uh, from Kaliningrad or anything like that, the military presence is overwhelming, right? It's military trucks in the streets. They are they're they're boarding up and fencing up uh, ports and airports and strategic locations. It's they're getting ready for something, and they're they're not entirely sure what it's going to be. And in terms of what they need, is commitment from NATO members who aren't on the Eastern Front who can supply and support that. So right now, I think. For Canada, we need to have a big rethink about making sure that these political commitments don't get lost in the architecture of bureaucracy. They translate into armored personnel carriers, they char they weapons, medical supplies, uh, uniforms, anything that can help uh, Ukraine get Russia out of its out of its territory. And then after that, prepare for the next commitment, which could be to Poland. And that could be broader stuff. That could be um, Poland's biggest vulnerability is energy. So only a few key spots in the country where energy is produced. They're going to need backup grids and technical assistance to overcome that because sure enough, if Russia ever decides to go at it, it'll be missile attacks from Kaliningrad or from mainland Russia that'll come in at their power centers.
You know, back in the 1940s during World War II, it was easy to be dismissive. I think wrong-headed, but for some people to simply say, oh, that's way over there. It's the other side of the world. Oh, yeah. Yeah, what, what kind of an impact is it going to have? Uh, it's a different world in, in 2024. And for people like Polyev, who says it's just some tiny little country over there, why should we th throw billions of dollars at it? Uh, I, I would suggest, Mr. Polyev, look to the north uh, because Russia's on our doorstep yes. uh, up there. And and this every every incursion, every victory in, in Ukraine, uh, in Crimea, wherever it's going to be, is emboldening Putin to start looking at the Arctic. And he's already started the, there. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's that's something I think we need to be cognizant of. The world's a much smaller place right now and a more dangerous place right now. And uh, it's going to take courage, I guess, for our elected officials to do understand and to realize that and to do something about it. And I'm not sure we're there yet. No. And that's that's the message that needs to really reverberate with our political leaders, it's the liberals, it's the conservatives, whoever it is, is that for Putin, this is a total war. This is a total commitment. It is not going to stop. We do share a proximity in the Arctic with them. It might not stop there. So if you know that something isn't going to stop, that this is how this government structure in, in Russia operates, then where do you draw the line? When is it going to be too late? Right? That was the same thing that was that was put to the question of many back at the beginning of World War II. They knew that that wasn't going to stop then. Uh, that aggression was going to continue. So at what point do you do you find the courage, do you find the motivation to to put the, the machinery in place and put it put it put a stop to it in its tracks? A uh, very pivotal time, uh, and we'll see what happens in the days and weeks ahead uh, with the, the, the circumstances as they are right now. Robert, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Uh, stay well, and we'll talk again soon, I hope. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it. Take care. Uh, Dr. Robert Hewish from Dalhousie University. And that's it for this edition of the Bill Kelly Podcast. Uh, spread the word. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And until next time, take care. Talk soon. Bill Kelly Podcast brought to you by Wizens Law, personal injury lawyers. Listen, you didn't choose to get injured. But you can choose the right lawyer. Wizens Law, 905-522-1102 or wizenslaw.com.